Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. We've got something really interesting for you today. Basically, uh, thanks to Lockie, who introduced us to this lady, Alina's got a new soulmate. I do, very much so. Um, we have with us today, and I'm and being a little sombre because it is a sombre subject, uh, we've got with us Elizabeth Mason, who's a historian and sociologist, specialising in trauma, genocide and terrorism. And today we're actually going to talk about genocide in film, which is really interesting. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. See where, go, where it goes. Lizzie, oh. hi. I'm good. Thank you, girls, for, for having me. I've been excited about this also for a while. Yeah, this is, uh, you two get each other. You two get going out to dinner with a guy on a first date and then going, what do you do for a living? And you going, please don't make me tell you, you'll never call me again. <laughs> yes. Yes, I've had that one too, way too many times. Or they get really interested and then after like five minutes, they get bored. Lizzie, we're going to talk about films and genocide and genocide on film and how genocide is represented. Uh, just briefly tell everybody how you came to this subject and what, what your um, academic interest is. How do you know this stuff? Um, well, I think it was kind of a roundabout way that I... Um... Uh, became an academic that kind of um, deals with this subject as one of a couple of disciplines that I, I work with. Um, really, my earliest experience with um, the discussion of genocide was a fantastic class that was taught at a university called St. Lawrence University in New York State. Um, I was taught by a fantastic man um, called Alun Gabriel, who um, specializes actually in uh, German resistance movements um, during the period of World War II, during, of course, the Nazi era. Um, and my first class was an introduction to genocide. Um, I became very passionate about the topic. I remember specifically um, a discussion with um, a man who became my mentor, Loon Gabriel, um, and discussing that I would like to work in history, I would like to become an academic. Um, and I said particularly to him that, I could not work in this field. I could not deal with the subject matter. Right. Um, there, of course, became a large um, arc in my own life. Um, I'm German-American. I have one parent who's American, one parent who's German. Um, my German family um, was um, involved um, in national socialism. Um, the city I'm from is the city of Coburg. It is the first city that elected a national socialist mayor. 
Uh, so, uh, so someone who was a member of the National Socialist Party, um, our Duke, uh, the Duke of Coburg, who of course um, is a descendant of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert um, of the House of Saxe Coburg and Gotha, um, that was Carl Emanuel. Duke Carl Emanuel was um, particularly connected with Adolf Hitler. He indeed was um, one of many royals in Germany who believed that if they allied themselves with Adolf Hitler, that he would restore everything that they lost. <laughs> Indeed, at the end of yeah. World War One, Even the Kaiser was dabbling with that up until the time he died, wasn't he? Like, he didn't he be yeah. between <laughs> hating Hitler and hoping Hitler would get him his throne back? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And of course, uh, Crown Prince uh, Wilhelm, indeed was particularly connected with Adolf Hitler for that reason. Yeah. Um, My latest research subject is yeah. the Duke of Windsor, so let's not even go there. Well, we could, but another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, Carl Emanuel was particularly involved in something called the T4 program, the Tiergartenstrasse 4 program, um, where he was on the committee that oversaw the forced extermination of persons who were physically and mentally disabled in Germany. Um, my city of Coburg had roughly 300 Jewish people, um, naturally before 1939, there was not one Jewish person that remains in the city of Coburg. Um, my opa, um, my grandfather, um, was indeed a member of the Hitler youth. Um, another member of my family, the, um, father of my grandmother was deported, um, believed to be a member of the National Socialist Party and was a train master um, in um, the region of Northeastern Bavaria and um, was deported by the Russians. Um, so this became a, a family exploration, of course. What did it mean to be German? What did it mean to have family history um, involved in National Socialism and um, who had arguable ties with the um, mechanisms, if not the social mechanisms that of course allowed the Holocaust to take place. Um, that brought me to move to Germany in, in some ways to explore being German. Um, and I guess in a really roundabout way, I came back to this history. I figured out that this was something I, I could talk about in, in ways that other people could not. Um, mm -hmm. This then led me to to try to understand what it meant to perpetrate these crimes um, and how an individual can become so separated from society, so separated from humanity, so separated from empathy, um, that this became something uniquely that I became adept in talking about. Um, what does it mean to be on the wrong side of genocide? What does it mean to be on the wrong side of acts that we now call terrorism? What does it mean to be on the wrong side of acts that we now call war crimes? This and is the thing, isn't it? It's like, we can remember those who perished and those who suffered um, and, and give them back their voices, but how do you stop it happening again if you don't understand why people carried it out in the first place? Yeah, yeah. So that is what I do. <laughs> Okay, well, so specifically today, we're going to talk about how genocide is represented on film. Uh, and you've given us uh, a number of, I think we've got seven films to look at, um, and they cover five different cases of genocide. I want to start with... Um, I want to start with the one that I think is going to turn out to be a really interesting discussion. I mean, we've got at least two films that cover the Rwanda genocide. Um, 
And this is the only bit of levity in the whole of this. When we were dividing up the films between Alina and I to watch, I wouldn't touch these with a barge pole because I went to Kigali in 2019 and the one day I spent at the Genocide Memorial um, was enough for me. I, I actually can't hack it. Um, so Alina picked these up and being a donut she is, has been watching them before bedtime. So the first film, Hotel Rwanda. Well, I feel like Hotel Rwanda it was really, um, when it was released in 2004, so conveniently also 10 years um, after the genocide began, um, very much brought the subject to the mainstream media. Um, now, in my opinion, there's several films that we're kind of talking um, about today that have their limitations. So of course, any Hollywood, any s cinematic depiction of inherently what are the worst periods of humanity in the modern era um, naturally can only have, only can go so far. Um, so Hotel Rwanda, um, I share with Alina that I bawled my eyes out um, the first time I, I saw this film and it still remains one of the most um, iconic depictions of the Rwandan genocide that we have. Um, personally, I, um, I find Hotel Rwanda and um, several of the counterparts we're gonna be discussing today, um, interesting rewatching them, interesting rewatching them for the first time I watched them, which was probably about 10 years ago and watching them today um, in that, um, really it depicts stories of a group of people that survived, a group of people that survived in the Hotel de Milcoline um, and, and managed to come out of this experience. And the limitations very much to these kind of films um, is that first of all, expected of a Hollywood narrative is a certain character progression is a certain ending, you know, something that, that, that comes to a particular end point um, to conclude the film with. Um, now, of course, what this inherently lacks is the, the after. Um, and of course, especially in the Rwandan case, um, in the case of, um, let's say, for example, the Holocaust as well, we can definitely say that there is um, a history that exists after this, not only personally for the individuals that survive, um, or even the individuals that perish um, uh, in these periods. Um, but very much also what happens um, emotionally, either individually or collectively uh, to a group of people that survive such traumatic events. Um, and I think that's something that rewatching, for example, Hotel Rwanda, rewatching um, Sometimes in April, which are the two films that um, um, I've chosen that are the most well-known depictions, in my opinion, of the Rwandan genocide. Very much it's this point of what is next, what happens, to survivors next, um, to Rwanda as a country next. Um, it's something very much that um, Hotel Rwanda misses and even to a point um, that sometimes in April um, does not um, uh, uh, conclude with or, or cover in these narratives. I found that really interesting and sometimes in April you know you start the film off and by the way this is the first time I've I've, I've dipped my toe in this genocide and it is it is so I just it blew my mind that I was what eight years old I was eight years old when this was happening so obviously we, we didn't know what was happening left or right but it, it's like what 20 years 20 years ago almost almost 20 years ago it's it 
it brings it home. And I sat and I watched this and, and it starts off with um, Idris Elba, who's a teacher. And it's really interesting watching you start with the aftermath first. So they kind of gently bring you into the genocide, you know, and, and, and it's very easy. And, it's very, and you're thinking, oh, OK, this is going to be all right. And then it just goes just completely and utterly dark. And you're watching these people go from safety, feeling feeling good, feeling okay, even though his wife has been saying to him, his wife says, you know, come on, we should have left. We should have left by now. And I'm sitting there thinking, yes, you should have left. Why did you not leave? You could have left by now. It brings up, this film brought up so many emotions that I didn't know if I was going left, right, up, down, or round and round. So just some background like on the Rwandan genocide. I think in that case, it sounds to me, because I didn't watch this one, um, I had like a really horrible moment at the memorial um, and I cannot get this image of this little girl out of my head whose picture is on the wall and under all of the, they have a children's room where they have all the pictures up. And I've told this story on this podcast before and it's like, she's up there and um, it says like name, age, and it will tell you what happened. And under what happened, it just says a soldier repeatedly smashed her head off a wall till she died. And this to me then says that that film gets it, the Rwanda genocide, because it's just this sudden explosion of mass violence, effectively out of like, and the scale at which it reached, Lizzie, is just like, there is no way to rectify it in your head is there no i think certainly um when when someone mentions the word genocide um we of course in i hope at this point in secondary school i hope it's not talked about before in anyone's education um genocide brings about this image of, of mass death you know it's not um serial murders it's not for example one two three people being murdered it is a scale that is indeed incomprehensible. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly with the Rwandan genocide, um, it is a scale that in, as far as documentation shows, goes beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. We are talking in a tremendously short period of time. We are talking 900,000, possibly more people um, being viscerally annihilated um and in a very physical in a very direct way um, i mean this girl i mentioned was two years old two or three exactly. years old at most mm -hmm. and that that's the difference i think probably mm -hmm. why it blew alina's mind is it's not like the holocaust it's not years and years of build-up and exactly. planning and it just it's people on people it's it's not some big bad reich doing it and planning it you know what really got me? And I laid in bed at night and I laid into the early hours and thought about this quite a lot. Now, it was the Hutu and the Tutsi and the film underlines at the beginning, they had similar culture, religion, backgrounds. They were basically more or less, you could say borderline the same. And I'm sitting there thinking, going, wow, okay. So if you compare what I study and you think, okay, Poland, similar to Czech, similar to Slovak, that is like the Poles going in and massacring the Slovaks or the Slovaks massacring, massacring the Poles. And it's just, I, I just can't imagine that actually happening. Brother killing brother, sister killing sister. There was no filter, absolutely nothing. I mean, you drive down, you, uh, so we actually, so we had to do a lot of, we traveled by road in Rwanda um, and we were doing the gorilla thing and I was happy to do it and happy to pay uh, 
like the the premium that you pay to go and see the gorillas in the wild because the money goes into Rwanda. Um, and it is, you pass the mass graves and it you drive past them. On, and it's like, you know, when we drive around the Western Front and you spot the war cemeteries, it's like you spot the genocide cemeteries. And it's, it's like they've, God, they still live with it every day. And actually, so we mentioned this, didn't we? Uh, or we have mentioned it on another podcast and I can't remember what order they're going out in. The fact that this led to Rwanda being the only country ever asking to join the Commonwealth. So you have all these, everyone in Rwanda walking around with a French name um, of a certain age. And yet they don't want to speak French. They don't want their road signs in French. They, it just because of the connections to how the Tutsi were armed and by who, but it, it still, I think it hurts so much because it's so recent and we're not old. None of us in this Zoom conference are old, but we have memories of this. And it's the fact that I think it's the reality that you, you're, that humanity hasn't outgrown it. Yeah. Still happens now. I think that's why Rwanda hurts the most. I don't know what you guys think. Um, uh, well, yeah. I think certainly when um, we discuss... Um, I mean, I mean we, we sit in a, in a very privileged position. We saw the Rwanda genocide um, often after the fact and over television screens. Um, and I think certainly for individuals, um, well, I think we can certainly imagine A, who survived this, but B, um, individuals who um, even hear about this, for example, secondhand um, from parents and loved ones that did survive this and are wondering, of course, why they have no aunties or why mm. they have no grandparents um, or why, for example, their mother doesn't speak um, about their father or why their father isn't present because, of course, we know one aspect of the Rwandan genocide was, um, and uh, for one of the first times starts to become very public, is the use of rape as, as a weapon of, um, um, ethnic cleansing or indeed as a as an act of a war crime um yeah. and so why for example yeah mother doesn't speak about um a child's father um or why for example um maybe even the, their loved one who experienced the genocide um even might still experience uh symptoms of of post-traumatic stress syndrome so that could range from anything from being uncomfortable from certain sounds, certain smells, certain images. Uh, it could range all the way up to um, potentially how, um, in relativity to how, um, how much of an impact these traumatic experience had, could even, for example, um, result in night terrors. Um, so, you know, a, a child may be waking up in extreme cases to a parent screaming at night um, because the memory is still there of something that they experience. Um, and this is what we call in trauma studies, secondary trauma, um, or inherited trauma. Um, and it's been very well documented really since the Holocaust, since, um, Jewish, uh, children of Holocaust survivors ask these questions of why their parents behave differently towards them or why their parents behave differently in general, uh, mm -hmm. to people who did not experience this. Um, so certainly, um, we, you know, the, the, the generation that are adults currently would be um, the second generation of survivors of the Rwandan genocide and um, would experience a whole host of 
um, witnessing certain psychological effects, and then to a certain degree inheriting and, and adapting their own behaviors and psychology to um, the psychological effects of, of genocide from their parents. I think my one, um, you mentioned the using rape. I think my one memory is that the Imperial War Museum did a, a thing in a, like the cinema that they had. I don't know if it's still there, what with the refurb and everything, but they showed um, a film of the genocide. And to her credit, my mum didn't stop me. She didn't want to go and watch it. I went and watched it. Um, it was a 15 minute film. And the one thing I remember about that film, the one actual memory I have other than a blur of horror is a small girl with her knickers around her ankles. And you just think, so in terms of film and genocide on film, she's lying on the floor, she's unconscious or she's dead. I, didn't, I don't know. Um, and that's the situation she's been left in. And I wonder when, why does Hollywood want to make films about this and how do they go about it? How does it differ to the, any other normal kind of process of making a film? Um. Well, firstly, I think that, um, that of course, Hollywood does um, um, adapt in some way that a lot of media does to the idea that often the most horrific things are the ones that draw attention. And we see that, for example, in, in journalism, the most polarizing um, stories are the ones that, um, that garner the most attention. So if we talk about, for example, like a clickbait culture, like the most shocking, the most polarizing, um, garners the most public attention. I think to a degree, it is that fascination with something shocking, with something terrible behind comprehension that does attract viewers. So I'm, I'm certain that that's one element of um, why Hollywood has picked up um, these films and why actors um, such as Don Cheadle, such as uh, Idris Elba, um, such as Liam Neeson, of course, from Schindler's List, um, also have been involved um, in these projects. But also I think um, what uh, we see particularly in um, the films that we're discussing today is um, often Hollywood picks out uh, films that do, in the midst of this horror, have a happy ending. Mm. Um, in order to, of course, keep the viewer watching, in my opinion, through the entire film. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's like, why would you want to? But then, I mean, I'm sure this is going to come up because um, I think everyone lists Schindler's List as, no one lists it as a film they want to watch, but everyone lists it as a film they know they have to watch before they die. Um, mm. And I think there's an element, isn't there, of if you pretend these things didn't happen and you forget these things happened, then you risk them happening again. Um, a sort of social obligation, yeah. You also picked, as you said, for Rwanda, sometimes in April. Oh, why, why the need, from a, an analytical perspective, why the need to pick both? Mm. Well, I think Hotel Rwanda is, is um, as I said, be also because it went through the Oscar cycle, et cetera, um, is, is by far the most famous depiction, especially um, for quote unquote Western audiences of the Rwandan genocide. Um, I remember particularly um, in my very early years, we're talking 12 years ago now, um, in my bachelor's degree, I remember that in my courses, um, my professor um, did not pick Hotel Rwanda as the film, as the required film to watch 
in in my um, introduction to genocide course. Instead, mm. it was sometimes in April. And rewatching this, re kind of analyzing sometimes in April, what I find more valuable is because it wasn't Hollywood per se. Obviously, it is um, popular mainstream filmmaking. Um, I felt um, that sometimes in April depicts a more um, honest version in some way. Hotel Rwanda, um, for various reasons, does pick and choose certain scenes um, that have the most dramatic impact. And I felt that sometimes in April um, doesn't do that to a degree, but also most importantly, in my opinion, shows an aftermath. It shows what someone is left with when they have lost everything and to such um, a horrific extent as with the Rwandan genocide, I felt that Idris Elba's de um, depiction of what someone is left with after that was so important to the story. Elena, you you found watching sometimes in April some some striking uh, aspects of the film, didn't you? Well, yeah. If we if we carry on with this 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 line of thought, you kind of when you watch it, he's trying to find out what happened to his wife and his kids. And that's the whole bottom line of the film. What happened to his wife and his kids? They go off with his brother who is uh, being prosecuted for, for crimes against humanity. He's in prison. And you're still trying to find out by the end of the film, what happens to his wife and his sons. And it is such, I'm going to swear at this point, it's such a mind fuck at this point that you have no idea. You're like, come on, she must have survived. She must have survived. And I'm not going to spoil the ending because it, it's actually really interesting, the ending, um, how they write this whole... Trying to find the right words to, to, to not make it sound... Because it is, it's horrific what, what happens to her and the kids. And you just want to know. That is the one thing that drags on. And don't get me wrong, it's really interesting, but it's a total... It mind, it mind boggles you till the end. I think, is that kind of the point, though? Because how many people actually did get answers in Rwanda? Is that what the film is trying to say, maybe? That this is most people's fate? Not yeah. Fate. And it's, it's also about the trauma. You, you watch how, you know, it starts out with, with the rain in April, literally. And it's like the rains come in April. It started all over again. The trauma is back. And, they, and it's repeated every year same time of year and that's what they underlined through the whole film that moment in april the rains are back i think very much so i'm i find that this kind of motif um that the film builds on it very much reminds me of oh you'll have to forgive me i forget what term is um in english but for jewish people remembering the holocaust in german it's called the Yahrzeit. so it's the time of remembering every year um, especially should um, uh, Jewish individuals have family members who perished during the Holocaust, um, this particular period of remembrance. But also, um, I think very much so, yeah, it is, it is um, very poignant with the Rwandan genocide that um, um, I imagine certain smells, the certain atmosphere that one can expect um, in Rwanda, in um in the period of April 
could could be a reminder, um, especially if this memory is so fresh, if we're dealing with 10, 15, 20 years after, sometimes even a smell, sometimes even the sound, sometimes even the humidity that would be created in such a climate um, from a rainy period could could invoke, this is, this is what I felt, this is what I smelled, this is what um, the humidity touching my skin felt like the last time I saw these people that I loved most um, alive. And I think that's something that very strikes me, this, this, the title of Sometimes in April and that opening scene of Sometimes in April when the rain is coming back again. That's, that's what strikes me. That's what I very much think about is that is probably exactly what Idris Elba's character remembers the last time he saw the people that he loved the most alive. Absolutely. Um- you you don't just look at the Rwanda genocide. Uh, you've picked some films from others as well. So tell us about first time, first they killed my father. Ah, uh, so this is just so fresh in my mind because um, I just finished rewatching this. Like it was the last thing I watched before I went to bed. Just um, bring it back in my mind. Um, first they killed me. Fa- my father um, is um, at this point, especially because of the director involved, which is Angelina Jolie. Um, is probably the foremost depiction of the Cambodian genocide. Again, we're talking for Western audiences Mm -hmm. um, that exist today. Um, So the Cambodian genocide um, took place um, from the mid to late 1970s um, and was very much uh, a genocide that was targeted um, primarily against the um, intelligentsia. So persons from the cities, persons seen as more educated um, and could be depicted as um, part of a sort of kind of uh, communist agrarian revolution um, that was very much put forth by paramilitary groups in uh, Cambodia during that period. Um, And it is estimated today that 1.7 is the lower, and I stress estimate, um, up to 2 million victims uh, were claimed during that period. Um, And it follows the story of a young girl um, who... um, first of all, is part of the evacuations of the capital city of Cambodia, Phnom Penh, um, very early on. So that would be um, uh, April of 1975 and follows the story of her and then her family. And then when she separated from her family um, in a forced labor camp, an agrarian work camp in the uh, Cambodian countryside, and then her experiences being trained as a child soldier, and then her experiences uh, fleeing um, Cambodia as a refugee. I still find this astounding that, you know, Holocaust happened in the 1940s and you've got genocide in the 1970s, in the 1990s. It's still, and it's still happening today. It is just still happening today. And I, I can't wrap my head around how hard we work to let people know about what happened with the 6 million Jews, with the amounts of Poles and Soviets, and so many people who lost their lives in the Second World War, yet it's still going on. I think it's something we don't we don't learn. I mean, um, if if one um, looks to certain genocide scholars, um, the argument of the first quote unquote recorded genocide can trace back to Julius Caesar and the conquest of Gaul. Um, yeah. We've had Emma <laughs> Southern rant merrily about uh caesar being a murdering scumbag 
on this yeah. podcast and, and saying he is responsible for genocide. I mean, certainly it, um, genocide, of course, naturally is a modern term that came about after the Holocaust with Raphael Lemkin. But yeah, I mean, indeed, you, you have, as I said, certain scholars who would interpret the possibility of something like a genocide occurring in written history as far back as that. So humanity, I think, oddly enough, um, A, becomes desensitized, B, becomes um, disassociated with seeing certain groups as self, certain groups as something, as an entity, I should say, that can be recognized as something human even, or something similar to them that has inherent value um, in terms of human life. Um, and I think even with the media that exists today, with things like citizen journalism, with things like YouTube, cell phones, etc. Um, certainly, again, I should stress um, in the Western world um, that certain people are, are not seen as, as humans. Um, for example, the arguable genocide in Syria, if you ask the modern American um, if that was a genocide, if that was something that should be stopped, um, in, in, my, in my certain opinion, there would be a subset of American society, especially in the wake of 9-11, that would argue, no, this group is identifiable as people who support terrorist activity, who are arguable terrorists and are a group of people that because of the demonization in Western media are no longer seen as human beings. And I think that is a consequence of propaganda throughout history as well. And we certainly can see it in every case of genocide that we're talking about today, if not every case of genocide period. Let's get to the one that coined the term then. Uh, we've already mentioned this. We've got a couple of films to talk about. Uh, one of them actually makes me angry. Uh, I'll explain why, but it's not Schindler's List. Schindler's List, it makes me angry for different reasons. And it's because it was allowed to happen. I guess we've talked about sometimes in April and following one person's journey through genocide and looking at what it does to them. This is the this is the benchmark, is it not, of the sweeping story that tells you the whole story of a genocide. I'll say it. Schindler's List. Talk to us about Schindler's. I'm going to keep quiet for this one. Okay, because I was wondering if um, I should, of course, defer to you. Um, Alana as well, but um, she'll Schindler's definitely get her oar in eventually. Don't worry, but you're the <laughs> guest. You go first. Um, Schindler's List was also one that I rewatched on Sunday, if I'm not mistaken, because of course, when I don't do other work, I just watch films regarding genocide. Um, however, Schindler's List, um, I think first of all, what strikes me is that it is, it is black and white. It is, um, very much Steven Spielberg's um, attempt to um, depict the, um, I think what we can safely say is um, the annihilation of the Jewish population in Poland, particularly um, the Jewish population in and surrounding uh, Krakow, Poland. Um, Schindler's List itself, um, I find, takes the monumentous task of trying to depict indeed um, the entire arc, the entire trajectory of the Jewish experience, particularly in um, 
I would argue, a very heightened situation um, for the, um, the final solution to the Jewish question uh, in Poland uh, that takes place broadly between um, the invasion of Poland 1939 up until um, the end of World War II 1945. Um, and I think Spielberg takes on um, a difficult task and, and does a commendable um, depiction in Hollywood cinema of trying to capture every element um, of the Jewish experience. So of course, going from um, um, the limitations of Jewish life that take place early on in Poland in 1935 uh, to um, removal of property, of personal possessions and the ghettoization um, that then takes place the um, removal to forced labor camps uh, that take place after that. And then of course, deportation to one of the six death camps as well. And then of course, in the case of um, the quote unquote Schindler's Jews um, that takes on a slightly different depiction, of course, in the film, they're shown as being sent to Auschwitz. Um, that is not the case um, in the case of, of the actual history of, of the Schindler's Jews. Um, and then of course, of the ultimate liberation um, of Jewish persons um, at the end of the Nazi occupation. Um, as I said, a monumentous task, um, a task that of course, when one is doing so in um, a very limited period of time, even though Schindler's List seems very long to certain audiences, um, is one that of course, given the fact that um, the Schindler's Jews survive, they live, unlike um, millions, as we know, roughly 6 million Jewish people. Um, it, has a, it has a certain, um, again, I, I, I would say, quote unquote, happy ending, not watching to mitigate the traumatic experiences of any individual who survived that, yeah. and namely the Holocaust. Um, it, um, it, uh, it leaves out, of course, what happens to everyone else. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the thing, and this is where Alina comes in, because Alina's uh, specialization is not Jews at Auschwitz. It's political prisoners and homosexuals. Mm -hmm. and In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. 
in nature, art, science, culture, history. We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Gypsies in inverted commas and everyone else that the Nazis murdered. Well, exactly. Look, I mean, if we're going to go, if we're going to open up this can of worms, let's just open it up and, and spill the contents out. I am not against Schindler's List. I think what it did at the time is is amazing that it brought the Holocaust out into, into the light because it, it didn't have an opportunity. People weren't talking about it. It, it started discussions. People were, were opening up. People were talking about their experiences. I'm not going to put that down for it. But it stretches the truth. And I'm not putting people's experiences out the window because people went through some horrific, absolutely horrific things. And when I listen to some of the survivors um, talk about what happened and how Amon Gott would shoot from his balcony and he narrowly missed the girl that he was shooting for and hit the person next to him i mean this stuff is is just unbelievable but spielberg again he goes down the hollywood route he goes and shows specifically what happens at Poishoff. and Poishoff just wasn't for jews Poishoff, there were loads of poles there there were poles being murdered in in on mass up um if you if you go into Poishoff in um I'm not going to get into the details because otherwise I'll start planning Poishoff out and we don't have time for that. You know, there's this pits where poles were being shot. It was also a labour camp and it didn't actually become a concentration camp. I think, God, someone's going to correct me here because uh, I'm an Auschwitz uh, historian, not a Poishoff historian. It's 1943, 44. Someone's going to come in and correct me for that. Please do if you if you have a moment. Um, and it's... It, I prefer the pianist. I'm going to go down that road. I'm going to say it out loud. I prefer the pianist because it shows you more of what life was like in the ghetto. It shows you, it just shows, I just, am I biased? Am I biased against Spielberg here? I think I might no, be. I don't think you are. <laughs> a little bit biased. Um, it is your honest, personal preference though, isn't it? And yes, you may be biased because it's, that's your, closer to your history than Schindler's List is um but if yeah. we're talking about if you if the one criticism you can make of Schindler's List is that it Hollywood divided a bit that's a word now uh Armand Goethe then I have to say that I hate the principle of the boy in the striped pajamas oh, I I'm really not even going to talk because I, I just it, can't but why do you need to zhuzh up genocide and make it even sadder or sadder with something completely implausible do you mean with the boy in striped pajamas yeah okay i do you know what i'm getting i'll let elizabeth go first and then i will let my anger it's her show i'm i'm not going to say any more than what i've said already i i think it's ick i think zhuzhing up something as bad as the holocaust to make it even sadder for your audience is pretty grim. I don't know. What do you think, Lizzie? That is exactly why I brought it in. (laughs) So um, if I have to kind of discuss what my preference is um, for Holocaust films, um, quite frankly, I feel um, that beyond that um, Schindler's List is not my preference. I I Mm. suppose I should say my, um, because I I used to also work as a tour guide at at the former concentration camp Sachsenhausen. Um, 
So I had a lot of guests who, who would come in on, on my tours and would of course um, ask, well, where were the Jewish people kept? And that is two to possibly six barracks out of 60 plus, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at, um, at what was a forced labor camp, not a death camp, not an extermination camp, not a camp in Poland, God forbid. Um, and um, so very much the, the narrative that could be captured, A, is very limited for, to, to one group of people in Schindler's List. But I mean, even, even beyond that is, is even limited in terms of the narrative of, of Jewish victims of the Holocaust. And I really feel that the only narrative that does that justice is the 12 hour long saga of Shoah. <laughs> so, um, and I think when we talk about the scale of the Holocaust, when we talk about minimum, minimum in, in my opinion, having, having researched the Holocaust, 11 million people. And that of course is, is a hugely questionable number. And I, I would argue it's much more um, that really, if we just talk about the one, one subset of victims of the Holocaust, um, Shoah barely does it justice. So we're talking then 12 hours versus the three-ish hours of Schindler's List. When we talk about the boy in striped pajamas, um, (laughs) from from my background in the United States, um, that's where I grew up. That is where I got my early history education, as very flawed as that is in many aspects. Um, Personally, um, my experience was that The Boy in Striped Pajamas was a book that was used by um, teachers um, in secondary school that um, wanted to cover this material. But this is, of course, um, as it is a children's book. Yeah. Um, Commendable idea as a book, as a film. Yeah. Also more horrendous. Um, But based on the book, um, it is for a very specific um, age range. Um, And I understand that for children, I, I can empathize that for children, the concept is, is to show empathy and humanity in a situation where you're not supposed to be able to empathize, make friends with a group of people that is so completely demonized. That is a wonderful narrative for a child. Mm. and very much cannot capture the totality of the dehumanization that took place and the very calculated, planned dehumanization of the Jewish people that started long before the National Socialist Party, the Nazi Party, even came into existence in Germany. Of course, we know um, that Jewish people um, have been discriminated, at least in, in, in my country, in Germany, um, since the early Middle Ages, um, they are forced to identify themselves differently. They, of course, um, in the Middle Ages, are restricted to, to certain professions. And this is very well known, um, that Jewish people are something considered other, are something um, considered inherently un-German, especially when we start to have um, the definition of what it means to be a citizen of Germany that um, comes about in the Second Reich. So of course we all know the Third Reich, the Nazi period, the Second Reich, um, also known as the Iron Empire, um, was of course um, 
the period uh, where we have Kaisers. So Kaiser Wilhelm II, um, the famous Wilhelm scream that we know in films is named after him. <laughs> um, yeah, we love it. He's uh, I'm, my my speciality is World War One, and uh, in particular George V in World War One. So Willie and I are old friends. Well, cousins of everyone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what I find so sad about poor Wilhelm is, of course, he doesn't look like um, uh, George Nicholas. <laughs> No, I know. Well, unless Not it's the that Kingsmith film, but yeah, he uh, he didn't look like anything like I think the the kind of man that he wanted to be with Definitely. his identity um, and stuff. And I think it was largely the root of the problem. But <laughs> he wasn't guilty of genocide, so let's put him out of the conversation. Uh, well, was he? Um, mm. The genocide of the Herero and Nama um, yes. would have taken place. Um, on his watch. On his watch. Yeah. So he is, but again, against people that um, Western audiences definitely don't identify as self or uh, a group of people um, even considered human at that period. I think um, overshadowed completely by Leopold as well. Yes, definitely. Of course, with um, the occurrences in the Congo that never stopped having an impact, of course, with um, conflict minerals, with child soldiers with paramilitary groups. Oh, the list goes on in mm. the Congo. Um, sorry, I digress, I digress, I digress. We were talking about- We digress the all the time on History Hack, it's <laughs> fine. We're talking about the boy in the striped pajamas. And why it's okay as a story for children, but why I think you're about to get to why it's really not okay for grown-ups. <laughs> I will say as an introduction to this, um, I mean, certainly what it does is um, um, it belittles the, first of all, the depictions that children in Nazi Germany would have had about Jewish people. Um, so the idea that, um, of course, the main character, Bruno, um, would not have been in the Hitler Youth, would not have been told um, what we now would identify today, absolutely horrific things um, of how they should view individuals that, because children were told that these individuals must be removed from society. They were told that these individuals for the safety of German people must be removed. That even a boy of his age would not have had some cognizance of that narrative is unfortunately completely false um, to the degree that a child would then be able to recognize that in their daily life. Yes, naturally that's questionable. Um, I even in my research on trauma and specializing to some degree in um, the impact of trauma on children um, would not be able to psychologically speak to the degree in which a child would be impacted by um, such rhetoric um, specifically. But the um, idea that he'd be clueless is just doesn't wash with you. No, no. Um, and certainly the the idea that then in addition um, that because um, the depiction is 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 assumed to be Auschwitz um, that a child would be able to get up to the fence um, is is not in any way, shape, or form at all plausible. In it's any not way. even like it's not even like you're sitting there going, but the buttons are wrong, like pedants it's the fact that it belittles what Auschwitz was go on Elena go on rip so I'm so dying to rip this a new one um (laughs) so it's perceived that he was it 
going down the Auschwitz route, that he was Huss's child in theory, because who else was the camp commandant at that point? Jesus. First of all, they lived in their little villa, you know, secluded. The only contact they would have had with prisoners would have been, you know, the nanny or the prisoner that came to clean the house or whoever it was. Or, for example, one of, funny enough, one of the first transport would go and uh, cut Huss's hair um, and his and his son's hair. That's the only contact they would have had with prisoners. These these the, no, they would not have. They would not have had contact with children. Children predominantly in Birkenau. And if you look at the bloody distance between the two, how would he have gone and seen them? It is. It just it just would not have happened. It just would not have happened. It's impossible. And the other thing is, do you know the amount of people that ask me, where did this happen? Where 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 did the you know. And I'm thinking that it, it, it's fiction, people. It just didn't happen. And I'm oh, sorry, I'm getting really rattled up. With Take a deep breath, Alina. I think what we're saying, rather than picking out every historical inaccuracy, the boy in the striped pyjamas, is that it's an unnecessary addition to the lexicon of Holocaust and genocidal Agreed. films. Agreed. What, is that what the grown-up versions of us are saying? No. I view this film exactly the way I view the tattooist of Auschwitz, the librarian of Auschwitz. It is the same, okay, based on some sort of truth somewhere, somehow, but made up or exaggerated all the way around. That, that's how I view them. Sorry to people who've been reading these books. They're, they're just, it's trash. It's all trash. I do, yeah, I just find it ick that it would be a fashionable setting for us. Love story. Can we, let's move away from the Holocaust and the, the striped pyjamas before we all lose our shit completely. Because uh, we have two more. And actually, I really... Uh, let's get the one I watched the other night out of the way first, um, because I'm really keen to hear what you've got to say about the last one. But Dances with Walls. I watched it the other night, um, and we're talking about the decimation of the Indian population or Native American population in America. Um, and I... I started off because I haven't seen it. In so I think my, some, the story is my mum has made me at some point in my young life, made me sit through all of these films as they were coming out and as they were coming out on video because she was obsessed with Kevin Costner. And at the point where they skinned the buffalo, I stopped watching and felt sick and never went back. So I sat through it all, um, or they found skinned buffalo and I was done. But um, it started off and I didn't realise that there was going to end up being, in Hollywood parlance, a good tribe and a bad tribe. So it was, you've got all this glorious music and uh, sweeping score when he was traipsing across Colorado and Ohio. Um, and then the uh, Native Americans showed up to the baddie music. But then uh, that, I, I was not giving it time to bed in because obviously then he goes and meets the Sioux, doesn't he? And uh, it completely changes his life. Uh, and he's not a real character. But what does this film do for this genocide um well i think first of all it um dances with wolves is is a film that i inherently kind of wanted to bring into this discussion um because of course again with the name kevin costner attached to it is one of the most famous depictions of plains indians groups and of course uh with the sioux there is multiple um um groups or i know people would call them tribes um of the Sioux that exists even today. Um, and what Dances with Wolves um, propagates, um, one of its great downfalls is the idea 
um, of the Plains Indians as first of all, um, a group of people that is nomadic, which we associate very stereotypically with um, uh, Native American groups, um, that they're all nomadic, that they all live on horseback and um, that they are a hunter society. Um, first of all, what this does is it, stere it, it typifies um, the popular beliefs about Native American peoples, um, that f the idea that they fit into the certain stereotype. Um, and in my mind, very much belittles the idea that um, there was an empire of Plains Indians peoples, that this was a highly sophisticated society, that this was a society um, that was conquering, that was actually um, like we would assume um, European people to be, they were colonizing, they were taking over new territories. And the idea that we belittle uh, Native Americans peoples or in Canada, First Nations peoples as a group of people that is only to be conquered and not the conquerors. Um, first of all, um, is something that this film can open up discussion for, but also what Dances with Wolves depicts is something that really um, was made clear to me when um, I worked for a short period of time on a couple of projects with the Canadian embassy in Germany, um, is that the popular depiction, maybe not in the United States, maybe not even in the United Kingdom, but around the world is that there are, for example, German people that would still ask representatives of the Canadian embassy if um, Native Americans or in the Canadian case, First Nations people uh, still lived in teepees. Um, that the idea that this is a group of people that was sort of frozen in time and that this is a group of people that the film certainly dances with wolves would even depict that doesn't exist anymore. That there isn't a very long and also a very genocidal and traumatic history that occurs after Dances with Wolves takes place that begs discussion and that has been... I won't lie, I lost track of how long it was and... At the point where he rode out of the pass at the end, mm -hmm. I was stunned that was the end of the film. And then it reeled up. 13 years later, they got run away and that was it. And the Sioux died. Yeah. And I was like, hang on, what? So what is this film been about? Where <laughs> this? OK, so he's leaving. I get that. But then surely this is the intermission. I don't know. It, I just felt like, what is the point? Where was this going? What were you trying to convey with this story? And then I realised it was Kevin Costner and actually what they were trying to convey was as much Kevin Costner on screen because he directed it as well mm -hmm. as possible. And when you tie that in with the, his performance uh, in the editing suite of Robin and Prince of Thieves, which was like in a narrative, in a chronological line quite close, where he shut the director out of the editing suite so he could edit it with himself in it more because he thought people were stealing his thunder. It's just... A vanity fest for Kevin Costner, is it not? And it's also very much whitewashing um, yeah. the Native American narrative, in that, of course, yes, the person to be um, depicted, the story to be told in the relationship between um, Anglo-European settlers um, in the the Plains region of the United States and Native American peoples. Um, is meant to be told from the perspective of Anglo-European settlers and not from uh, Native American slash First Nations peoples themselves. And um, I think in that trope, um, Kevin Costner does a huge disjustice. 
uh, to that narrative and sadly only propagates what has been the narrative of that group of peoples and how that narrative has been told um, since the 1700s. It is. I mean, because it's all about him. And in doing that, what he's actually doing in microcosm, he is just white people. <laughs> it's all about us <laughs> and our perception of Native Americans and what happened and not them. Um, I think the idea that they were kind of, I don't know, or what, am I just reading too much into it that they come across as really childlike and then as soon as they give the white man a chance they realize he's great and they want all want to be his friend and they all want to wear his clothes and one of them wants his hat and the other one wants his jacket and I'm thinking uh. no that is a narrative that we see repeated again and again and again um in how Anglo-European peoples depict um uh First Nations slash Native American peoples and something that um again, why I felt dances with wolves was an essential part of this narrative is because we, we see in the epilogue at the end of the film that um, the Sioux people um, are quote unquote broken. Um, this of course um, is also not, not in name, but is referencing um, the Wounded Knee Massacre, which was December 29th, um, 1890. Um, and then of course what happens after that, which is the period of um, well, the, the Native American version of ghettoization, which is reservationism. Um, very soon after the quote unquote, and this is, this is what the United States government termed as the pacification of Plains Indian peoples. Um, what this begins um, to, in order to re-educate and assimilate the childlike Plains Indian peoples is mm. the period of residential schools. And this is the forced removal of um, indigenous children, um, indigenous with a lowercase i, because indigenous children with a capital I has a different connotation, but the um, forcible removal of indigenous children away from reservations, because reservations were essentially a place for indigenous peoples to die, that culture to die, and uh, adult indigenous peoples to die. Um, the idea was is that children are removed, children are re-educated, they're taught to um, cast off their childlike primitive ways and become westernized. Um, and this is what we now know today as the residential school system. The residential school system, as we'll talk about in uh, a little bit, is something very, very, very well known in Australian history um, for a couple of reasons, is somewhat well known in Canadian history and is all but not discussed in United States history, even though the first residential school, the first school where um, Indigenous First Nations, Native American children are removed and put to, was opened up in the United States in the state of Pennsylvania and is known as the Carlisle School. It just, so what we're saying is that basically that Kevin Costner's a knob, which I kind of, I mean, I, slightly less offensive than Mel Gibson, I think, but that's a whole other podcast. Um, Apocalypto didn't make it onto your list. Uh, she's shaking her head like, hell no, it didn't. I just, yeah, it's Alina for your for your benefit because you didn't. This was one of the ones I did. Uh, you spend three and a half hours as this guy uh, leaves the American Civil War, goes across the plains, and decides that life is better as a Native American. Grows his hair long, um, 
marries the one convenient white woman that happens to live slash translate for everybody in the camp. <laughs> Lizzie's getting angry just on this recap. Uh, and then basically the American army catches up with them and then they kill a load of them. And then he decides he's leaving. So he rides off into the sunset and it's like, what? But what's this got to do? You're t why? I'm, I'm not interested in you, Kevin. It's not all about you. I'm interested in the Sioux people. And you've just cut the film off. And then suddenly it comes up on the screen. 13 years after this, uh, this happened. And then the Sioux were destroyed. And you're like, OK, so that was basically a four hour film and you ran out of budget or what? Do you know what? This sounds similar to, not exactly, but similar. Wait for this one. The Last Samurai. Oh, which is obviously all about Tom Cruise. Uh, exactly. Yeah. It's <laughs> just like. And also, great that mischaracterizes the end of samurai culture and what the samurai culture represented. And the fact that uh, samurai culture is simply adapted um, with the so called period of industrialization in Japan to. Realize that machine guns were awesome. <gasps> <laughs> It's, uh, she's having it's, heart palpitations. Let's go, let's go. Right, let's go to Australia. She's not going to make her any less angry because uh, you mentioned residential schools and forcible removal of children. Now, I have not seen this film. I want to see it. I think I started watching it once and fell asleep. And that's not a reflection of the film. I think it was just like three o'clock in the morning. It's Kenneth Branagh and Rabbit Proof Fence is about Aborigines or Native mm -hmm. Australian Indigenous. Oh my God, I get so confused with the terms and offending people. Uh, Aboriginal Australians yep. is what it talks about um, and what white people did to them. So what does this tell us? Um, so the rabbit proof fence um, is a specific depiction of um, two young girls who are removed from the region of Western Australia, getting more towards central Australia. So <laughs> Western Australia for, for anyone who has been, of course, um, the, portion that we think of to visit or is widely populated um, is of course Perth and Fremantle and then going down towards South Australia. Um, largely Western Australia um, has its most settlement and its most kind of like um, urban areas along the coast as a lot of Australia does. Mm. Um, and Western Australia um, of course even to this day still has one of the largest proportions of Aboriginal peoples uh, with a capital A um, uh, in, in the whole of Australia. Um, and very much so um, because of the high percentage at the turn of the um, 20th century. So the turn of the 1900s. Yes, that is the 20th century. I always get confused with that. Even <laughs> historians do. Uh, but anyway, turn of the 1900s because uh, Western Australia has proportionally the highest um, level um, of um, Aboriginal peoples, um, there is a man who is put in charge of um, Aboriginal affairs called A.O. Neville, who is played in the film by Kenneth Branagh, um, which I think is, it's, 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 a, it's a depiction that, that turns your stomach, but Kenneth Branagh, um, I find, does an amazing depiction of A.O. Neville. Um, there's one scene I want to talk about in a minute. Um, he um, depicts... Um, very much the mindset, the governmental policies towards Aboriginal people um, that not only translates to um, forcible removal of children, what we now what we now term today, particularly as the stolen generations, um, and the process of re-education of Aboriginal peoples 
In Western Australia, A.O. Neville cultivates a particular policy that goes one step further than um, especially the rest of Australia, but also even Canada, who has a concurrent policy of removal and of, uh, and of Indigenous assimilation at the same time. And that is um, what is called racial absorption. Um, so one particular scene um, that is depicted, in my opinion, brilliantly by Kenneth Branagh um, is, is a scene in which he is showing a slideshow of what we call half casts, um, quadroons, and octroons. Um, this is a horrific term for the idea that um, it is widely believed and um, even today, um, as much as it has a different connotation, believed that um, indigeneity, as far as Australian Aboriginal indigeneity, um, is a recessive trait. So the idea that facial features, skin color, etc., in terms of Australian Aborigines is a recessive trait that if you force, and this is the case force, um, young um, Aboriginal girls who are white looking um, and you forcibly marry them. And A.O. Neville actually had the control to say, you may marry this person. You may not marry this person. You are told to marry this person. Um, uh, essentially, and it is termed in the film, breed out the black. This was actually a governmental policy in Western Australia to racially absorb Aboriginal people by first of all, removing them from their parents, secondly, putting them into residential schools, and thirdly, because the total control of an Aboriginal person to the age of 18 would be under the control particularly of A.O. Neville, the character that Kenneth Branagh um, plays in the film, um, meant that he could personally engineer the racial absorption of Aboriginal peoples. Oh, I just, I feel sick. <laughs> I feel fucking sick. Welcome to my entire master's thesis. Yeah, is this what you did your master's? This is what I did my master's thesis on, was the residential school system in Canada and Australia. <laughs> you know, I think, uh, I think we need to start heading our own films and we can run our own TV series at this rate because at least we'll get it done properly. <laughs> Probably <laughs> won't be worth watching to anybody uh, that's a layman because they'll just be like, where's the plot line? Where's the happy ending? Well, there isn't one and we taught you a lesson. <laughs> Now go away. Um, exactly. As a, I mean, what kind of I so I know Rabbit Proof Fence. Are there any other films that sort of challenge this or do it in a different way? Um, I mean, in my mind, um, as far as narrative film depictions, the Rabbit Proof Fence, and of course, this is the story of Doris Pilkington. Um, by far, is is the most famous depiction. I've had many um, Australians when I kind of slid in. Um, to the topic of genocide with many of my Australian guests previously, um, that is by far um, the, the one depiction of the quote-unquote stolen generations, this entire process, um, that um, um, it often tends to be talked about among um, people who, who are Australian, who live in Australia, um, and are particularly are of... Um, the, the 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 white the anglo-european settler population um of australia so um i would say that this film is in a category of its own as far as the australian uh cultural consciousness um there are several um documentaries particularly in my mind i always tend to like the long very harrowing probably like alana <laughs> in that, um 
the depictions that I feel do this history best tend to be the longest ones possible. Mm. Um, so there's one um, documentary that I watched probably over and over again, even when it was not what was going into my research was the first Australians. Um, and that is an amazing, it's an eight part documentary of each episode being 45 to 50 minutes long. Um, but really, I do feel that's the best. Um, in, in my opinion, what, what comes out the, the most often um, in terms of Aboriginal storytelling from Australia about this period tends to be coming in the form of songs, coming in the forms of then these songs and these poems being put into, um, into written form. Um, that tends to be what I, I, I see most often. We're also seeing a lot of documentary films that deal with the aftermath of the stolen generation, the traumatic impact of the stolen generation, which of course um, uh, involves um, criminality. So um, alcoholism, um, then public, um, what do we call public offenses based on alcoholism, petty crime, um, undereducation, lack of education. There's a lot of documentaries that are talking about that these days. And then also what um, very much is, is starting to come about is um, the discussion of the absolute severance um, that the residential school system tried to achieve and to a large degree did achieve in Australia was the total severance from culture, from language, from cultural practices, from family and family systems that occurs in Australia as well. Um, so very much, I think if one wants an accurate depiction and one can kind of has some sort of background knowledge and okay, the stolen generations happened, it existed, this is the rough narrative. And then a consciousness of this impacts Aboriginal life today. Um, mm -hmm. I very much would air towards modern documentaries and several have gone to like Sundance um, and major mm -hmm. international film festivals. Um, that discuss this and I think do a really um, fantastic job, but that kind of, it skips, doesn't it? For a lot of people, it skips stolen generation narrative, um, removal narrative, and then kind of skips to the modern day and kind of forgets everything that happens in between. So that can be quite hard for some viewers as well, in my opinion. Lizzie, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about genocide on film. This has been so interesting. Uh, we're both really into films and we're both, renowned for researching miserable topics as well and we found another friend yay <laughs> brilliant oh thank you so much um thank you for having me it's it's um as i said been something i've looked forward to talking about for a while so it's been great to find kindred nerds you can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look, do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. 
You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.